0: This episode was recorded during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labor of writers and actors, this film wouldn't exist. We stand in solidarity with those striking.
1: Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of
0: course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And today we are going back in time, and we're featuring a movie that I've never seen before, One of the very first Spanish horror film, Tombs of the Blind Dead. Yes,
1: 1972, directed by Amando de Sorio. It is great. I've seen it many, many times.
0: I was a Tombs of the Blind Dead virgin until about two hours ago, and it was great. It was fantastic. I'm really excited to discuss this one because, like our you know, episodes where we feature older horror movies, I always feel like we end up thinking, you know, at the end, like, oh, I don't have that many notes. And then we end up like really striking gold with our analysis of it. So I'm excited to talk about this one.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I am
0: also excited
1: to talk about it because there is so much to analyze around this film. And yet I also can just totally watch this and be giddy and just be like, I love the blind dad. They're so (laughs) neat. Look at them. So how were you
0: introduced to this film?
1: My partner. Mm -hmm. This is one of his favorite horror franchises. It's one that he told me a lot about. You know, my knowledge of horror was pretty, I would say, kind of general, save for the stuff that I watched in film school, which was all the like early silent and like German stuff that I watched in film school, which I loved and did a lot of writing about, but I really had not delved into like European horror beyond anything British. And he knows a lot about that. He's a big fan of Italian, but especially Spanish horror. And he would mention this series all the time. And funny enough, I like, kind of didn't know what he meant when he said Tombs of the Blind Dead. Or I think I had a much different picture in my head of what it was, you know, or what I thought it was based on the name versus what it actually was. And he kept saying, like, you're going to really like this one. And he was absolutely right. You know, it ticks a lot of boxes for me. And I love the whole original franchise, which is comprised of four movies.
0: Yeah, we talked about that a little bit while we were watching it. Amando DiSorio did all of them, right? All of the original the, four. All yes. the original four. So, Which is pretty interesting, especially for something that, like, I had not heard of this. I know that you guys have kind of mentioned it in passing, but outside of your influence, I had never heard of these films before. So I was really interested to watch it. And something I was just thinking about, it's kind of like this weird dichotomy. Italian and Spanish horror can end up being very accessible on late night movie channels and things like that because they're low budget And they probably don't cost anything to license or like, you know, redistribute or put on your television show at like two in the morning. But on the other hand, now they've kind of become these cult classics and they're getting re-released. You know, Vinegar Syndrome does a lot. It's just interesting to me that it was more accessible and now it's like a cult thing because of that, because of that accessibility. Definitely, yeah. It's um the Blue Underground version Blue is Underground. the one that we watched.
1: And I think that part of this is that when the European horror films of the 60s and 70s were coming over to the US, it was typically in a grindhouse or a drive-in kind of a situation, definitely for kind of the novelty of that watching experience. But they were also so often repackaged. And the problem then became, depending on versioning and what started to get sold through cable distribution and things like that, sometimes it could be really hard to track down a movie that you liked because it had like three different names. Mm -hmm. You know, it had the original uh, name in the country of origin, the translation thereof, then it would have like a US release version and then like a Grindhouse release version and on and on and on. So a lot of these films have built up like this cult mystique because finding them was half the battle, you know, and finding them as VHS releases Under perhaps a third or fourth name was part of the sort of charm of tracking them down, let alone the charm of the film itself.
0: Well, and plus, in a pre-DVR world or a pre-streaming world, if you miss, you know, the roll-up or the title sequence, and you know they cut before the ending credits or something, you might never know what the name of the movie even is. Oh yeah, yeah. So (laughs) it's so interesting, you know, being in an IMDb. Space now and being able to like go back and say, Oh my god, that person was in there. Like, one of my favorite examples of that is Giancarlo Esposito, who's an incredible actor and you know, all the laurels and stuff. But a favorite of mine, a childhood favorite, is Maximum Overdrive, which is lauded as like Stephen King's worst movie. You know, he directed parts of it and it's like really terrible. <laughs> and, I mean, I say that with love because I freaking love that movie. <laughs> but Giancarlo Esposito is in that movie. And he plays this teeny tiny little role. He gets murdered immediately. He's only on screen for like 30 seconds, but he's actually the driver of the Happy Time Toys, I think is the name of the, I think so. the semi. But anyways, I digress. That's kind of the fun of going back and saying like, okay, I remember this actor being in it. Who's that? Oh my gosh, they were in this, this, and this. Having said that, did not have those moments in this movie. I didn't know a single one of the actors <laughs> in this film, not to say that it was you know bad or anything, but. It's a Spanish film, so yeah. they re everybody in English with American accents, yeah. which is pretty funny. And then some of the
1: American actors who are doing the dubbing then do Spanish accents
0: for certain characters, mm-hmm. too, which is like a funny little quirk. Oh, that is funny. Well, then you save money on yeah. hiring extra voice actors. So yeah. I guess it was to their credit, because this movie is definitely made on a shoestring budget for sure. In the best way possible. Like, I definitely think that they made their uh, budget stretch in that regard.
1: Oh, yeah. Similarly to George Romero's complaint about Season of the Witch. Go listen to our episode on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talk about this at length, but he was asked before he died, like, if he had the opportunity to remake one of his films, which one would it be? And he said Season of the Witch because he had a lot of budgetary problems with that film and he didn't have the budget to really enact his vision. And Osorio said kind of the same thing before he died, but kind of writ large, just that he never had the budgets to do what he wanted to. Like he really couldn't execute his full vision of these films or of these characters or the characters in his other horror films to the degree that he wanted to
0: because his budgets were so shoestring. And that's really a shame because he really does a lot with the budget in this one. Yeah. Because when we say like low budget 70s horror film, you typically think of something very campy or goofy looking. And I'm even thinking into the early 80s, really great example of that is the very first Evil Dead. Although... It's great and I have a lot of love for it. I if, do too if yeah. somebody outside the genre might say, well, that looks really campy or that makeup looks really goofy and in this case, you can say almost the opposite yeah um, minus the hands I mean
1: I love the hands <laughs> I'm just saying the hands are
0: cute the they hands are saying and I love that they even move, which is great yep. the like skeleton hands aside from that, which is even just a small like that's a really small thing, honestly. If you hadn't pointed it out, I might not have honed in on it so much. But I just love them. I'm obsessed no, with them. They're, they're great. They're they're seriously great. And they went to lengths. You can tell to stretch that budget. And the costuming is great. They have a bunch of horses. So many horses yeah. in this film. And you know, even the bite marks, like those, look very good. The makeup that they put on the women, you know, when they're ghouls, is actually very good too. So, all things considered, they really did a great job of making it not goofy and campy and like look almost silly.
1: Yeah, the Blind Dead—they are really good-looking characters, you know, and they all look very consistently good. It's kind of an interesting device because they all look the same, Mm -hmm. as opposed to you know zombies. And we're gonna get into the whole. Zombie argument here in a bit. But as opposed to like Romero zombies, where the intent is very much to make them look different, you know, you look at especially Day and uh, Dawn of the Dead, and it's a very intentional choice to make all of your zombies look different, to represent different facets of their previously human lives. In this, the whole idea is to make them look very, very, very uniform, which I think can help with costuming and makeup and things like that. And it can make something that even if it was cheaply done, if they all look the same, you have fewer opportunities for one to stand out as looking better than the other. Right. But that said, they look really, really good. I just love this character design.
0: And the masks even are really good because you can tell they're wearing like skeletal masks over their faces. They look really good. Yeah. That's something that, you know, always a complaint is that when you're using like a vinyl mask or something that has like a stocking underneath, it can look really campy. But the other fortunate thing is the blind dead don't have any lines. Right. You know, they're not having to make facial expressions or do anything aside from just be. So that's kind of cool. I mean, they are alerted to sound, you know, depending on on where the sound's coming from. But just as a quick note, if you have not seen this movie, Tombs of the Blind Dead, it is about medieval knights, the Knights Templar, yes. who were executed for their black magic rituals. And a few friends and one of the friend's boyfriends end up unwittingly in the tomb of the blind dead. Correct. One of the friends tries a out of a vacation and she ends up camping in the tomb of the blind dead. So... And Mistakes then, were made. And then chaos ensues, Truly. pretty much. But just a quick note, our main characters are Betty Turner, who is friend number one, we'll say, played by Lone Fleming. Roger Whalen, terrible boyfriend, played by Cesar Berner. And Virginia White, who's friend number two, uh, former friend of Betty Turner, played by Maria Elena Arpon. And then there's a few other ancillary characters, but that's really our main cast is the three of them. I guess you could also say Pedro Candal, who's played by Jose Thelman, or Thelman. But that's basically it. It's a pretty yeah. small cast. It is, yeah, yeah. And a lot of horses. But the horses aren't credited, so.
1: No. <laughs> Unfortunately. But they, are, they are not normal horses.
0: No, they're slow horses. Yeah. They're they they're like move slowly. They're ghoul horses. They are ghoul horses, which you don't see that very often. in you don't. It, like real horses used as like ghoul horses in film. And another thing that you don't see very often in horror movies is the Knights Templar, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I was mentioning that, you know, this film for the time
1: that it was made, it was very surprising that it turned the Knights Templar into the villains of the story. You know, even now, although <laughs> we have a little more of a nuanced view of them, but I, I mean, I can even remember, especially going to You know, a Catholic school, you know, it's like the Knights Templar. They are viewed as this kind of historic hero. You know, they're very heroic. They're very seemingly noble. Obviously, just like with everything with history, it's way more complicated than that. Sure. But for a film made in the early 70s to really just be like, hey, these guys are the villains was particularly unique and
0: kind of nuanced. I wonder what influence Catholicism has had on the removal of the Knights Templar from horror movies in general, because I mean, maybe not so much in America, because like, we're not a part of a, you know, a country that was, you know, generally affected by the Knights Templar or the wars and the Crusades and things like that. But I do wonder how much that has impacted what is and isn't in film. A lot, because
1: in the Spanish version of this film... They are never referred to as the Knights Templar. It is understood that they mm-hmm. are the Knights Templar through imagery, but they were very, very careful to not refer to them as the Knights Templar to avoid pissing off the Catholic Church even further because they were not pleased with this movie. A lot of people weren't pleased with this movie. This film was made, it was able to be made because Francisco Franco had died. And so it loosened up the ability of Spanish directors to make things with less censorship. That said, there was still quite a bit of censorship and directors had to typically shoot in an additional country so this was filmed in both spain and portugal Mm -hmm. often spanish filmmakers had to either film their horror films completely out of spain or make their characters uh, especially the monsters not spanish so like waldemar daninsky he is polish the character is a polish nobleman Not a Spanish nobleman, even though Paul Natchee, of course, is Spanish. Mm -hmm. And he was, the character was originally written as Spanish, but to get by the censors, he had to make him Polish.
0: Yeah. Which, like, (laughs) the mental hoops they have to go through. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This movie in particular is particularly fascinating to me because the Knights Templar, you know, are bad. The overall effects can be considered bad depending on, you know, what lens you're looking at, at it through, but this movie adds an extra layer to that. Yeah, because like I mentioned to Juliet, nobody really cared about the Knights Templar until the Dan Brownification of the Knights <laughs> Templar and like, yes. you know, the Da Vinci Code and all that stuff, like whatever speculative history, but. This takes an an extra step further, not just talking about the Crusades, but they're like, no, these Knights Templar were participating in black magic rituals where they cut virgins up and drank their blood to become immortal, which interesting, because why would you want to be a ghoul forever? You know, like, did they think that that was going to happen? My guess is no. Yeah.
1: My guess is that that was one of those things where it was like, you know. You don't realize the price of the black magic, you know, like, oh, we're going to live forever and be wealthy men and, you know, rule the world. And then it's like, whoops, we're ghouls. Yeah. And we're blind and we have to drink people's blood and have little skeleton hands.
0: Also, I mean, granted, we only see a part of the ritual, but who knew it'd be so easy to become an undead ghoul? All you got (laughs) to do is cut up a virgin and drink her blood. Yeah. Yeah. Easy. They,
1: they expand upon that the whole ritual thing in the subsequent films. Like they kind oh, really? of, it's cool actually. So on the one hand, you could say, well, they re-explain the origin of the blind dead like every time in mm-hmm. every movie because although they are sequels, each film can stand on its own. You know, we don't ever get back to Betty or any of these characters in the subsequent films. Mm-hmm. And it's actually okay. Like, it works really, really well that way. And honestly, that is, again, another, like, Romero thing. And I think it's the thing that we tend to forget with modern franchises. Like, you can have sequels that take place in the same universe, but Iron Man doesn't
0: have to be in every movie. (laughs) Yes, he does, Juliet. Uh... If he's not in the Marvels, I'm not watching. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding.
1: <laughs> but um, so every time in the film, they always tend to re-explain the origin because these films could stand alone, even though they're all, you know, part of the same story. And I think it was smart because they were coming to international audiences in all different sure. ways. But I think the kind of cool thing about that is that the origin shifts and like expands and contracts a little bit throughout those different explanations. But that's the way that folk tales work. Right, right. You know? Yeah. Like they treat this as like this folk tale. You know, you have all of the people, and you see this in the second film too, which is my favorite of the franchise, by the way, where, you know, it's always like whispered in the villages about, oh, you don't go here because that's where the Templars are buried, and here's what they did, and we stay away from that because. There's bad energy or it's scary or they, you know, my mother told me that they would rise from the grave. And like, that's exactly how regional mythology and folktales work is. Everybody has their own variation with the same like common elements. And I love that.
0: Yeah, and I think that there's something to be said about giving your audience enough credit to understand and keep up with an evolving tale. Yeah. Because there's always this discussion about like, oh, well, that breaks continuity. It's like, yeah, okay, like, cool, continuity, whatever, but give your audiences some credit. It's okay to hit them with complexity, to hit them with unreliable narrators, with changing storylines, you know, changing mythology or causation, whatever, that's a cool thing. That's actually yeah. really cool. Like think about all of the Dracula iterations that we've had and nobody's ever like, um, actually that's not in continuity, <laughs> you know, like, and if they did, we'd be like, okay, cool. Well, this is Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is, you know, Bella Lugosi Dracula. This yeah. is something different. So nobody gets pissed that interview with a vampire, you know, Dracula situation is not the same as Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. So all that said, I just think give your audiences some credit. If they enjoy the subject matter, they'll go through the mental hoops with you. They'll be able to get there. You know, if what you're showing is something that they're interested in, I think that they'll follow you with that, Mm -hmm. even if it's not exactly the same. Yeah. I'm always like, you know, give us a little credit. It's okay to have things change up in between. Mm -hmm. And I actually like that. I think it's a challenge, it's something challenging where you're like, well what do I trust you yeah. know yeah and I appreciate that being purposeful
1: yeah so and it's really more true to the way we as humans tell stories and yeah. and share stories and pass along traditional stories or traditional folk tales or folklore and the kind of cool thing about this is that although the Templars are historical figures and Asorio certainly Took some influence from other monsters, from many other monsters, in fact, to create the Blind Dead. This is an original monster. Mm-hmm. You know, these are a sort of original monster character. And I kind of like that. Like, again, we're going to talk about, like, do they fit in one bucket or another? And, like, yes, and, but also the Blind Dead are kind of their own thing. And yeah. I think that's really
0: cool. And I think that it's really cool. Their look is very, like, you know, classic Grim Reaper e. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really a very neat touch because both it makes it so that their costumes are sort of simple, but in a way that makes it easy for them to customize. So those costumes end up looking really rich and like very detailed. Yeah. Because they're able to be very similar between all of them. You know, there's one with a beard, but. That's like the only difference between all of them. Mm -hmm. Some of them wear gloves. I did notice that so that they're able to use their thumbs instead of having skeleton fingers. But aside from that, like, I don't know. I just thought that the design was really, really, really cool. At the time, I think it was pretty unique.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: It's like an early ghost face, like a way early ghost face.
1: Yeah, kind of. In the same way that... Ghostface, you know, everybody kind of forgets because Ghostface has been part of, like, popular culture for so long. Like, Ghostface was his own original thing when Scream came out. The mask existed before Scream, but the character was... Wes Craven's invention right. for that movie right exactly and at the time that was very revolutionary because you know we had had all of these seminal franchises that had been with us since the 80s you know Freddie and Michael and Jason and so Ghostface was brand new he's not now yeah everybody
0: he's canon now but yeah God bless Wes Craven yeah his ability to create totally new franchises blows my mind yeah so th- at the start of this movie, we meet Virginia and Betty, who are like old friends. They were friends in high school. And then Betty, who's brought along her terrible, terrible boyfriend named Roger. Roger's he's so terrible. He's a full Roger. He's a whole ass Roger. Um, <laughs> he basically, as soon as he meets Virginia, he's trying to have sex with her, like immediately. Betty is literally in the next train cart They're They've met at this resort. And then they're like, let's take this train ride together. And then immediately Roger's like, you're pretty. Let's, you know, have sex or whatever. And she's like, cool, bye. And literally is having such a bad time. She hops. She asks the conductor to stop the train or the assistant or whatever, the conductor's son. And they're like, no, we can't. Not in this area because they don't know about the tombs of the blind dead yet. And she is having such a bad time, she literally jumps off this train. Let's add the nuance to this,
1: which is that Betty and Virginia were friends in high school, but is heavily implied in the American version and way confirmed in the Spanish version, were lovers Mm -hmm. at one point. So this isn't just a love triangle Emanating from one point. I'm really bad at geometry, y'all. <laughs> it's not emanating from one point. This is a love circle. Yeah, I don't know. Shapes.
0: <laughs> I don't <laughs> they, know. Shapes. They all have or want to do each other. It's a parallelogram. No, I'm just go. saying. It's not really a <laughs> But like, you know, Roger and Betty are there, and Betty decidedly does not want to have sex with anybody. Especially not right. Roger or men. She says specifically she has no feelings for men. Correct. Later on in the movie. But she's definitely making some googly eyes at Virginia. Mm-hmm. Roger assumedly wants to have sex with Betty, but also wants to have sex with literally everybody else. Yeah. All the time. Roger is down to clown yeah. at all moments. In every single inappropriate moment. Mm-hmm. There's a point later on in the film where they're in the tombs of the blind dead after after their friend has been murdered. You know, Betty and Roger are down there. Virginia has been murdered for a while. Yeah. They're in the place where she was murdered. And he's like, yeah, no, let's um, let's have sex with this other third woman that he's just met. It's Pedro's girlfriend. I can't remember her name. But then he tries to put the moves on her. What? Yeah. What is happening? Yeah. All he wants to do he's he's like, actually I don't really care about anything except for having sex with people. Like, don't care about your dead friend. Don't care about the seriousness of the situation. Would just like to have sex with everybody.
1: So this is a good time to bring up an article I read on Dread Central. It was written in twenty twenty one, last Hall or uh, it's twenty twenty three. Uh two that Halloweens sounds- ago. <laughs> it's
0: okay. It's fine. Time doesn't exist. <laughs> what, what is time? It's not real.
1: This one was written by Mikey Peralta Jr. as part of the Horror and Español series of articles on Dread Central. And the title of the article is The Cycle of Misogynistic Aggression in Tombs of the Blind Dead. And what the author basically discusses and explores in the piece is about how... All of the men in this movie are, A, terrible, and how, B, this film kind of uses the monster and uses horror to highlight misogyny throughout Spain's history, using the Knights Templar as a historical example, but using Roger and Pedro, who commits sexual assault in the film, as an example of modern spanish misogyny
0: that's really interesting especially by using like something that's really you know fantastic and horrific in a way that becomes real world applicable and like the knights templar were terrible then it's kind of like a this cyclical thing where it's like look how bad they were then they were so bad they killed a virgin and drank her blood but also Men are still terrible now. Yeah. Having nothing to do with the Knights Templar and everything to do with just the nature of being a misogynist. Yeah. In a government, it's almost like a commentary on how the government had kind of reinforced this misogyny, you know. And government influences patriarchy in small and big ways, but especially in Spain at this time, it was very obvious. Yeah. And I think that it's sort of a parallel Saying what we love about horror films that have a political message, saying the quiet part out loud by using an analogy that is fantastic and and challenging and like, oh, that's weird, Knights Templar. And then be like, actually, the big picture is men are bad and they are still bad. Mm-hmm. They've mm-hmm. always been bad.
1: In the Spanish version of the film, which FYI, if you're choosing which one to watch, the DVD version has both of them. I'm not sure which version is on shutter right now. However, the full uncut Spanish version, the sexual assault scene is graphically shown. So know that going in. You're going to get. Waves of it, no matter which version you watch, but the American version, there's actually a pretty hard cut, a pretty obvious hard cut that cuts that scene out. But in the Spanish version, where it is very graphic, the sort of staging and some of the physicality of it actually directly mimics both the ritual sacrifice on the part of the Templars and some of the things that the blind dead do to their
0: victims Mm -hmm. to really, really clearly draw that parallel. Wow. Just going to say, none of this stuff would have happened if Roger hadn't been a total butthead. <laughs> I mean, he's it's really, true. She would have stayed on the train, right? Everyone
1: would be fine. The blind dad would be sleeping in their quiet little tombs.
0: Virginia would remember. Oh my God, I hate men and yeah. only love women, and I never should have gotten with Roger. And Roger would have get, been kicked off the train at the next stop. And Betty and Virginia would have gone on to live their gay life together, Truly. happily ever after, in the Portuguese slash Spanish countryside. I love it with a roadside stand selling flowers. To AO3 we go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I really think Roger is the big villain in this whole thing. Roger is terrible. I mean, Pedro sucks, too. (laughs) I actually wrote in my notes, Roger is the worst exclamation point. And then in the next note, but so is Pedro. Jesus. (laughs) Pedro is also terrible. So during the course of the movie, you know, Virginia jumps off this train. She gets accosted by the the blind dead, which are blind Keep yes. in mind. Yes. They're blind. Not deaf, but blind. Correct. It's not tombs of the deaf dead. It's tombs of the blind dead. Yes. And Virginia is murdered, untimely murdered by the ghouls or ghoul slash zombies by the blind dead. And she ends up coming back to life. And there's a really cool scene with another person, Nina, who's kind of an ancillary character. Mm-hmm. She's more of a conveyance. She doesn't really pass the Bechtel test. Yeah, she works for Betty. Yep, she works for Betty and she's able to help kind of lend them more information about the blind dead in the area in which Virginia went missing and also get them in touch with other people who can help. I think she also might have been the liaison to the inspector, Inspector yes. Oliveira. Who kind of disappears halfway through the film, by the yeah, way. Yeah, he never comes back. What the hell? Yeah. Well, that's cops for you. Okay. <laughs> all right. <Ba-dum-ts. laughs> but they end up, you know, approaching this professor. And they're like, first of all, tell us about all of the secret black magic rituals that the Knights Templar used to do. And then eventually the professor's like, you know who could help you? My son, who is a crime kingpin. Yes. And they're like, cool, we'll go see him. It's like, what? Yeah, (laughs) that was a random uh, assortment of characters that ended up getting together. But Pedro is his son, who is a smuggler. He lives among some boats, Mm -hmm. generally with other folks, and he helps them get back to the tombs.
1: And part of that is with the inspector who disappears halfway through the movie. He is saying that Virginia must have been killed by the smugglers and both the professor and then pedro himself says like hey 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 we're smugglers we're not murderers right now granted pedro is also a rapist but not murderers
0: yeah and you can't tell me that pedro would not like definitely murder somebody yeah he's like we smuggle contraband it's not that serious i'm like okay it's pretty much that serious though yeah like it's weird they live out like kind of in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of boats and then when Betty and Roger get there they're like all stiffen up and they ask to see Pedro and his last name is Candal. and this girl says he's not here and then immediately the woman to her left is like go get him it's like <laughs> cover blown immediately yeah. what the heck but yeah Pedro is also terrible and once again, this is after Roger and Betty are like, hey, our friend got murdered here. Can you help us? And then Roger tries to have sex with Pedro's girlfriend, liaison, whatever. And Pedro rapes Betty. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. Men are terrible. Yes. that's the. I feel like that's the conclusion I'm drawing to in this film. Like the Spanish mm-hmm. men in 1972 were awful, just like they were when they were Knights Templar. Yeah. It's so weird, too, because the Knights Templar in the movie, like when they're assaulting or the blind dead, when they become the blind dead and they're assaulting women, they're like biting them. And in, mm-hmm. in, in that way, they drink their blood and kill them, which is not necessarily inherently sexual but they are not not inherently exactly that's exactly the point that i wanted to make it's like it's assault but it's also like you know taking in somebody's essence sort of like Mm -hmm. vampiric which we all know vampires are horny as hell yes like there's never been a single unhorny vampire no in the world no i'm really trying to think of one maybe um peter from what we do in the shadows the movie oh yeah or colin colin's a colin, pretty... no
1: but you haven't watched
0: this episode have you no i haven't seen any of the okay. new season yeah definitely horny what yeah oh energy <laughs> vampire i uh, know okay all right all right i'll suspend my disbelief but maybe peter and what we do in the shadows although i mean some people could be into that who knows yeah. He's like the Nosferatu. But see, listen to our Nosferatu episode because big gay vibes there. Yep. Yes. Potentially. Correct.
1: That is correct. <laughs>
0: we'll have to
1: see if the last voyage of the Demeter Dracula is horny or not.
0: I know. He looks more like creature-y. Yeah. Than like... He looks very Flanaganesque. Yes. Yes, exactly. There's an unhorny vampire. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, we got one. Yeah. That's cool. Props to Mike Flanagan for making the first and only unhorny vampire. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone can do it, Mike Flanagan can. Mike Flanagan. Everybody else in that show horny, but not... Not the vampire. Not the vampire slash angel. Maybe that's the key. It's just make everybody else horny, and then the vampire not so much. Yeah, that's that's a byproduct. That's yeah. a metaphor. Don't worry about it. Why don't we talk about ghouls versus zombies? Yeah. So... We can't really vote because it it could be one and one. There's no tiebreaker. I guess we could flip a coin, but okay. So the argument is, are the blind dead ghouls or are they zombies or are they neither? Yeah. That's a secret third option. I just sprung on you because it came into my brain. We'll have to do an Instagram poll.
1: Ooh, good idea. Yeah. We can do one in our Instagram stories. They won't stay
0: up for very long, but, uh. Go vote. (laughs) (laughs) Right? When you listen, see if it's still up there. Yeah. Lightning in a bottle or whatever.
1: Yeah. Here are the kind of arguments as they exist. So we know that Desorio was in part inspired to make Tombs of the Blind Dead because he saw Night of the Living Dead. It is widely known that Night of the Living Dead inspired a lot of European horror filmmakers, which rightly so, not just because it's a brilliant film, but also it was a brilliant film that was done outside of the American studio system. It was done independently, and it was done for relatively low cost. Mm -hmm. So it felt very doable to directors who didn't have a studio system to rely on, were primarily working as independents or by function of their film system, had to make a film and then sell it as opposed to developing a film, you know, in a more of what we would consider in America a traditional development process. Also, zombies, like Romero is the father of the sort of modern notion of the zombie. And so this was sort of a new creature to cinema as expressed by Romero. So we know Romero influenced a slew of filmmakers, especially the Italians and especially Spanish filmmakers. You know, obviously the big one we know is Lucio Fulci. But Desorio was also influenced by Romero. But whereas Fulci went like, I'm going to do Night of the Living Dead, but way more violent. Desorio was like, no, I'm going to do air quotes Night of the Living Dead, but with a historical bent and make my creatures completely new monsters. So there's definitely the zombie influence. The blind dead are undead, Mm -hmm. but they're also not quite zombies. They drink blood like vampires. They're kind of decayed like mummies. They... They can reason, which DeSorio points out, and we see that over and over again in the films. They are not sort of like, especially like Walking Dead zombies, I think about, you know, where it's just like, you know, shuffle about and eat. Mm -hmm. They are obviously capable of some kind of reasoning and logic they can communicate with each other because they always work together. You mm-hmm. know, it's not just like they sort of like swarm up. They're like always together in like a group sort of dynamic. They can ride horses. They can use weapons. You can see them like very cleverly trying to get into places like they're manipulating doors and trying to get in windows. They're like peeking in windows, which I think is adorable. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I <laughs> refer to them as adorable. They're kind of cool. Yeah. They're kind of like Muppets to me. They're just intriguing. So in that sense, maybe they're ghouls. Mm -hmm. But maybe they're
0: something else entirely. They're also kind of ghostly. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? So it's interesting that you mention all of that because the other thing is like zombies typically in order to make a new zombie, you have to bite someone. Yeah. So there's always like this thing in zombie movies where either, you know, somebody gets bitten and then ends up turning into a zombie or you get totally consumed by the zombie, you know, yes. guts hanging out and all that. Well, they are able to make new blind dead, but they don't eat them. They they don't really want to eat their flesh. They want to suck their blood and, yeah. and only a little bit, not to the point of a vampire. They're just like a little bit is fine. Yeah. So there's that. But the other cool thing is that at the time when this movie came out, there weren't hard and fast rules about what a zombie is and isn't. Right. So that's kind of what makes me think it's like this cool kind of loose interpretation of a zombie. Because I think we kind of take for granted that when Romero was adapting the the idea of a zombie, he's using... Two things. He's using I Am Legend as an inspiration from Richard Matheson, which was adapted into that Will Smith movie, you know, 12, 13, 15 years ago, whatever, which is a thinking, intelligent, yeah. uh, you know, creature that actually could also like, you know, talk and and mm-hmm. reason a little bit. So you have that as inspiration. You also have inspiration from like Haitian voodoo, you know, stories and tales and things like that. Old school white zombie, that kind of thing. So you have this kind of amalgamation of both of them. And I think people take it for granted now, you know, you watch Shaun of the Dead and it's like, okay, there's three rules about zombies or Mm -hmm. whatever and we're looking at sort of this interpretation not only is he drawing inspiration from a movie that kind of is setting these ground rules for zombies but it's also translating it between this film that was made in america and putting it into this context that disorio has sort of created around this like totally new creature and then combining elements of literally everything of all creatures like with the exception of a werewolf but even then there's a werewolf element to it where they wake you know under Mm -hmm. the full moon so or under the moon anyways so just really interesting kind of amalgamation of so many things so for my money I'm going to say this is Desario's interpretation of a zombie and I'm going to stick with that yeah I'm done with that I think the other thing to remember is that
1: we, in sort of our modern view of zombies, and this is definitely a modern zeitgeist thing, have gotten so used to the cause of zombies being disease or environmental related. Mm-hmm. And I think we put that on to Romero, even though Romero never tells us where the zombies come from. Right. We get some hints in Night of the Living Dead, but it's never, ever, ever confirmed. Fulci also never confirms where his zombies come from, but he's definitely going more in the white zombie, the sort of indigenous magic, voodoo, ritual, whatever you want to call it realm. He never confirms either. Asorio straight out says, this is magic. This yeah. is black magic that caused these creatures, which... We are definitely not used to it in this sort of modern iteration of zombies. I can't think of a modern movie. Yeah, I can't think of a modern movie at all that has magic. I'm sure there is one, but, you know, all of the popular ones now are disease or
0: environment. So the Love Witch is sort of like that. Love Witch gets there, I think, a little bit. Less a zombie, more a puppet. But it sort of gets there in terms of magic. But I think you're right. Maybe it's because the pandemic is, like, right at the forefront of our brains. Or it's really easy to imagine that we would have some sort of, like, chemical slash sickness that kind of wipes out part of the world. And we also have that World War Z thing. And, you know, the Max Brooks influence in, in zombies. So... I think and everybody knows Return of the Living Dead, right. the acid rain. Exactly. Exactly. So it's easy to think about it like that. But I do like the magic aspect of it, you know. And it's very simple. Like, there's not a whole lot throughout the movie that's, like, really hammering it over your head. Like, this was black magic. It's really just that beginning sequence. Yeah. When we see the Knights Templar commit their original indiscretion. Yeah. So I like that. So I'm going to say it's a zombie. Because who's to say, you know, it doesn't have to be, like oh, well, there's this illness that kills everybody or, you know, don't eat the chicken or whatever. Like, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. And I appreciate the sort of expanded theories around it, too.
1: Yeah. I like it as being part of zombie canon. Like, it can be part of other, you know, canon, too. Mm -hmm. Like, there are some overlaps with other sort of, you know, monster lineage. But I like it being part of zombie canon because I think that the more expansive we are with zombie films like and again this movie does exactly what i always say like romero did when he sort of kickstarted the modern zombie movement it uses the zombies the monsters as a way to look at something about humanity and this movie does that mm-hmm. so to me it fits both aesthetically from a monster perspective but also from a storytelling
0: perspective it's part of that tradition of filmmaking And another cool thing about zombies that I thought about when we were talking about Night of the Living Dead is that a zombie is something that you can create for relatively little money. Yeah. You know, it's not a ghost where you have to rely on effects. It's not uh, something that requires a lot of makeup necessarily. You know, I mean, that very first zombie that we see in Night of the Living Dead on the hill in the cemetery simply has some dark eye makeup Mm -hmm. and some torn clothes. And that's literally it. The rest of Romero's zombies are very, very simple, very basic. And I think that that's the beauty of it is that you can create a very scary, sinister situation with little to no extra help. Yeah. And although the blind dead are wearing these costumes, it's another situation where those costumes probably didn't cost that much. Mm-hmm. Those masks probably didn't cost that much. The effects, I mean, they're good, but they didn't cost a lot of money. You know, just a bunch of red bite marks over somebody not going to be something that's very expensive. And there's also not a lot of blood in this film. No, there's not. There's a couple of scenes. There's one towards the end where the blind dead are, they're using their swords. So there's like blood that splashes up against the train and the bite marks. And that's about it. There's one more scene that got cut in the American version on the train, Mm -hmm. another death
1: scene that just got cut for ratings in the U.S. But beyond that, it's not so much more gory than what we saw
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean it really wasn't very gory so um no like arms being torn off or anything like that (laughs) It still gets the message across. I do want to say that um, the ghoul horses, I'm saying ghoul horses because they never bite anybody. I think they're just, you know, by way of unfortunately being there during the black magic ritual, they're stuck with the blind dead forever. Yeah. Sorry though, about your luck, horses. <laughs> right? And But they're not blind. The horses aren't blind. No. Nope. So at least there's that. It would suck so bad to be like a service animal or a work animal and be like, Whoa. I was. I didn't want to be at this black magic ritual, and now I have to be a ghoul horse forever, just in perpetuity with these assholes who only wake up at night, and then they want to go drink blood? Lame. I'm tired of slow running around chasing after broads <laughs> that jump off trains. I'm sick of this shit. That's what those horses are thinking. You can tell. Yeah. They're tired yeah. of it. But every scene that those horses are in is in sl- filmed in slow-mo. Yeah. Which is hilarious. But it kind of, like, lends to the ethereal uh, it does. presence of the horses. You know, it's almost like they're floating yeah. across the screen. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. It's interesting idea. It is, yeah. The horses definitely nudge it
1: into the ghost realm a little bit mm-hmm. because they do look very ghostly. And especially, like that imagery of like all of these like horsemen riding these horses across these abandoned fields. Like that's again, like a very ghostly tradition, but the horses are corporeal. Yeah. They
0: can run you over. Right. Because Uh, Virginia rides one. She tries to ride one away from the castle or from the, the tombs, the ruins. And she almost gets away, but then they chase her down and yoink her off the horse, which by the way, looked very dangerous yeah i know that stunt did look really dangerous she didn't even look like a stunt actress like they yoink her off the the horse and she just falls on the ground i'm like that could have gone really badly yeah actually fun fact i was scared of horses until like two years ago that's fair they're huge they're huge and they have really big teeth and i am convinced that they're smarter than me that's fair yeah that's fair yeah I had a cousin who was killed in a horse accident. Not the horse's fault. Fair. But still, still scary. The fact that they have the power to kill. Exactly. Yeah. But then I rode a horse and I was like, they can be jerks. They can definitely be jerks. My horse was a rescue and it didn't like anything riding it. Oh. So when I was riding, we were in this like honeysuckle tunnel kind of where the honeysuckle trees were like kind of met in an arch And my horse ran me through the honeysuckle bushes on the left-hand side because she didn't want me to be on her. And I was like, fair. And they're like, listen, you just have to pull the reins really hard on the right-hand side to get her to go over. And I was like, that's not... I don't think that's going to make her happy. Nope. Yeah. And then she peed. And I guess when horses pee, you have to like lean up on, you know, on the saddle, like pull Mm -hmm. yourself closer to the head of the horse so that they could pee. And she peed for like five minutes. And I was like, this seems personal. This is <laughs> this is rude. But yeah. So I'm less scared of horses. I'm not like going to actively avoid them. I also don't come into contact, you know, having said this, I don't come into contact with horses on a day to day basis. I yeah. Don't. But uh, I did like that Roger and Betty could rent horses from their hotel. Yeah. I was like, is that something that just happens in Spain that they're just like, yeah, no, we're going to rent some horses today. Maybe. Or Portugal. I can't remember where they were vacationing exactly. I was um, never
1: a horse person either.
0: You're not a horse girl? Nope. Oh. Nope. No, they're- Surprising no one. <laughs> that involves being outside. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of allergens in, uh, in and yeah. horse burns. So Yeah, no. Hay, pollen, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. There were a couple horse girls at my high school or at my um, elementary school, not high school. And I was never horse girl because do you know how friggin' expensive those like horseback riding lessons and all that? Well that too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if there's you're There's no way in hell that we could afford Exactly. You get a the horse little situation. You get the little plastic horses, you play with them for like a year and then you're yeah. like, Okay, yeah, horses are
1: Yeah, I had My Little Ponies, but I was not a horse girl.
0: Yeah. OG
1: I'm... My Little Ponies. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> I never I never actually did the My Little Pony thing. I just had like the weird cheap like little horses that were like um flocked and you could like oh, brush yeah. their tails yeah but they were too small for your barbies to ride so it was basically pointless oh so it's lame that's not cool yeah barbie did have some horses that you could get but it was a special set my mom never wanted to buy it for me that's expensive
1: i think the fashion star phillies were
0: barbie sized oh that makes sense yeah i had like yeah. one of those Did they have like weird bright colored hair and like sparkly, Mm -hmm. like sparkly?
1: Yeah, they were like big horses that
0: were Barbie size. But the whole deal was that they came
1: with like, like barrettes and stuff to put in their hair. Uh, And like like, some of them had like,
0: yeah, the mains were really long. Some of them
1: had like, like glitter paint that you could like paint on their saddles and stuff like that.
0: Okay. Yeah, Yeah. I made a mess of those things. (laughs) I
1: remember those. Anyways, horses aside. Now I want to like find a horse figure and like paint it to make it look like a blind dead horse. Yeah, but then you need to find a Barbie. To make it into a blind dead? Yes. Blind dead Ken? Yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, you know what's funny? The Barbie hands would totally lend themselves to being little like skeleton hands. Ooh, they would. <laughs> you could like totally Ooh. paint them to be like little skeleton hands. You're absolutely could, right. And about they would this. move exactly the same way, like just stuff up like the- that'd be <laughs> so great like, yeah yeah <laughs> i'm really feeling this right now yeah it's great i loved that the set that they chose for the tomb is big enough that they could ride horses inside
1: yeah like
0: indoors i don't know if this is like an old castle i tried to look it up and i couldn't find a lot about it but it has to be like the ruins of a castle in I spain or something so. yeah because this shit is big enough that like Several people are right. Like, it's not just one dude riding down a hallway. It's like a whole horde of blind dead riding a horse through a hallway. And you're like, damn, this place is huge. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very good location scouting for that stuff. Yeah. The locations for all the films are
1: just great.
0: Yeah. Are they all in Spain? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah, they're all in Spain, but they're all set in different spots. Like, the second one is like the ruins of a cathedral. And, like, the sort of surrounding village that supported the cathedral. Okay. The third one is on a boat. Ooh. Yeah. Gotta take your zombie
0: movies on a boat you do. eventually. You It was, like, pre-ghost ship. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So, let's talk a little bit about Legacy. I yeah. Know, so, you mentioned there are four original mm-hmm. Desario movies. Yeah. What about other movies? Is there more to be said about the Tombs of the Blinded?
1: Yeah. They show up in a couple of other movies, a couple of other Spanish movies and a couple of other horror films, but there are some newer films, some of them fan films, some of them officially licensed films that are part of the franchise. So there's Graveyard of the Dead, which was a shot on video, unofficial sequel. Um, Love it. That's just charming because it's like shot on video and I love that somebody loved this enough to make that they show up in a couple of other films and then in 2015 there was another unofficial sequel which was called island of the blind Dead. it was Mm -hmm. a short and it was meant to be sort of the trailer for the lost sequel Mm -hmm. which never sort of panned out they never made a feature but then in 2021 curse of the blind dead came out that was an actual official sequel made by raffaele riccio that one wasn't received super well but it was actually like kind of the first official official sequel and there was a book a um anthology series that was released in 2020 called the blind dead right out of hell and it's a series of stories based on the blind
0: dead cool yeah very cool yeah cool like long legacy People loving this enough to make fan films about it and write about it so that's pretty neat pivoting a little bit I wanted to talk about the weird ancillary opening that the American version got yeah that turned this movie so tombs of the blind dead it turned tombs of the blind dead into a movie called return to planet ape because at this time, you know, mm-hmm. Planet of the Apes, huge movie, huge drive-in draw. It's got Charlton Heston. Everybody freaking went nuts over Charlton Heston at the time. So, of course, it's huge. It's massive. So, they're like, you know what? You know what we should do? This movie about the Knights Templar. Let's actually tag two minutes onto the beginning of it and make it about apes instead. Yeah. What? Which I was not aware that they would go to these lengths Mm -hmm. to do this. And there's like a, we, you know, we watched the extra opening. We're watching it and there's like this little blurb at the beginning that like, this is an example of what fly-by-night drive-in distributors would do to get their movie to be seen. And I'm like, I want to know what fly-by-night drive-in distributors will do. But they make that, they have this whole explanation that super intelligent chimpanzees used to rule the planet and Mm -hmm. the humans rose up and killed them and stabbed out their eyes we're supposed to believe that these resurrected chimpanzees are the blind dead and that they are going to save the earth from the terrible humans yes which i don't know how you get that out of tombs of the blind dead but (laughs) i feel like that would set a very different expectation yes Versus what we saw. So that was a really common practice, especially with European
1: films, was these, you know, grindhouse and drive-in distributors would acquire the rights to these films and try to get them in as many places as possible. And to sell the theaters on it, they would tie it to an existing franchise, a popular horror or sci-fi franchise. And they would add like a voiceover or sometimes just a name change or a slightly cut version of the film or they would throw like some extra stock footage in to make it fit that so that more people would screen the film so they would make more money because the economics of it were typically they were acquiring the rights for like a flat fee. There were no residuals, making it relevant to today, by the way. You know, there were no residuals for the European directors. You would get these like flat rate deals And then if the distributor did their job well, they could stand to make a lot of money if they could get it in a lot of drive-ins and sell a lot of tickets. So they would uh, do some wacky, wacky shit to get these (laughs) movies uh, to be appealing to an American audience. Yeah. Beyond just a horror, like a, you know, like a deep dive horror audience.
0: Yeah. It's just baffling to me. It's like, you know, you see those, like, fan-cut trailers on YouTube, like, turning Mrs. Doubtfire into a horror movie. Yeah. And that's a, that's kind of what it reminds me of, is, like, let's take this thing and make it more palatable to people by turning it into something totally different. Yeah. Because I think that that replaced the scene of the Knights Templar in- entirely.
1: Yeah, it did. The Yeah, the, like, pre-credit, like, ritual thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So
0: super weird, but I feel like there's nothing else throughout the rest of the movie that would lend itself to believing that the blind dead are trying to take the earth back from humans right so it just seemed like a big stretch oh it was a huge stretch yeah i wonder if it helped i don't know But I am very interested now to see the other films in this series because I do love a zombie movie in all its iterations. Mm -hmm. Whatever variation of zombies there are, I'm going to watch it no matter. So it was really interesting for me to watch this one and see kind of the, you know, I'm very familiar with the Italian version of a zombie, you know, zombie. I was excited to see what Spain had to say about it. And I think that this is great. It's a great take on the zombie. It's once again doing what zombie films do best, which is social commentary kind of subtle yeah. I mean the movie itself is not subtle, but like the subtle commentary on mm-hmm. like men sucked then they still suck now <laughs> yeah and, and who and cares and like on. I'm just these blind dead they're just gonna get on this train and kill everybody anyway so who cares <laughs> but Betty gets away maybe yeah. kind of sort of yeah she screams She's we pretty, don't know what happens pretty to dies. yeah I mean she survives we don't know if she thrives right. And she is screaming at the end, so who knows? Yeah. They could have come after her. And we never find out any more about Betty, right? We never see her again in the Mm -mm. sequels? Okay. Should have just kicked Roger to the curb, Betty. (laughs) That's the the moral of the story is that go live your best gay life. That's right. Your shitty boyfriend isn't worth it. Yeah. Because he's just going to get you killed by the blind dead. Yeah. (laughs) Open that roadside flower stand, Betty, in Virginia. Do
1: it. Do it. (laughs)
0: Okay, what are we
1: talking about next time, Juliet? So up next, we're going to do a really awesome indie film called The Barn. Very, very cool modern indie film, but definitely with some amazing throwback-y vibes. Really, really great monsters. Really, really fun premise. Awesome folks that made this one. I've met them at a couple of conventions and i uh, really excited to cover this film
0: yeah it's tons of fun definitely something a little bit less serious from our yeah (laughs) our streak of you know capital v very serious items so yeah we have not done a light one in a while (laughs) we have a tendency to gravitate towards the challenging so this will be a nice refresher yeah we said american werewolf in london was going to be
1: light and then it wasn't
0: somehow we were like you know what actually this is a metaphor for the jewish experience and then we we're like damn it yeah Juliet and i spoiler alert folks we don't know how to have fun yeah it's true it's true <laughs> we really try we're like no this will be lighthearted and fun and then we're like guess what the patriarchy <laughs> yes exactly uh so, I, but I really do think that the barn will uh, will get us back to a point where we can be like take a deep breath, and be like, okay, all right, here's some fun stuff. Everything is fine. <laughs> Everything is fine. <laughs> as we're just crying and smiling at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. dot com. You can support this podcast and hear
1: bonus episodes at patreon.com dot slash attack of the final girls. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. And rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet.
0: And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary.